This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, which is show number 100, Mark... Wow. That's pretty wonderful. Congratulations to both of us and uh, everybody who's, who's joined us for this journey. It's been pretty fantastic. Uh, so on today's show, episode number 100, author Gay Talese gives us a journalism masterclass while discussing the 50th anniversary edition of The Bridge. Then PW senior news editor Calvin Reed and longtime contributing editor Diane Patrick explore diversity efforts in the overwhelmingly white publishing industry. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So this time of year, there's a whole lot of nothing going on, at least on the fiction side. Um, I looked down the list and I had to get to number 18 mm-hmm. before I found a book that's, uh, that's new on the list, that's uh, in its first week on the list. Uh, that is The Boston Girl by Anita Diamant. Uh, we say in our Publishers Weekly Review that it is a gripping story of a young Jewish woman growing up in early 20th century Boston. And it's told uh, in, in a, a conversation between this woman who's now uh, an octogenarian grandmother in 1985 uh, and her beloved granddaughter. And she's trying to explain how did she become the woman she is. And so she talks about, um, you know, really domestic life, home life, about her friendships, influenza, a relative suicide, uh, and her disastrous first date. Uh, And she also talks about becoming a career woman ahead of her time working as a newspaper typist. So uh, our review says this is a stunning look into the past with a plucky heroine readers will cheer for. And so that's at number 18 on hardcover fiction. And then a little bit further down the list at number 23 is Moriarty by Anthony Horowitz. Uh, Horowitz is the author of The House of Silk, a widely acclaimed Sherlock Holmes pastiche. Unfortunately, we say that this follow-up to that is disappointing. Mm. Uh, Sherlock Holmes appears only in passing in a prologue, and uh, the rest of it focuses on narrator Frederick Chase, a Pinkerton operative who's following Clarence Devereux, who's a, a sort of American equivalent to Moriarty, Sherlock Holmes's great nemesis. Uh, so we say that as a pair, uh, Chase and his, his sidekick, Athelney uh, Jones, uh, who's a Scotland Yard inspector, mm-hmm. are but a pale shadow of Holmes and Watson. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, um, yeah, I suppose on the coattails of Horowitz's first success, it is on our hardcover fiction bestseller list at number 23. Oh, wow. And that's it. <laughs> wow. Well, we don't have much more nonfiction. Basically, we have a Dungeons & Dragons game companion book, which is Dungeon Master's Guide. This is at number eight. Uh, sold about 27,000 copies. Mm-hmm. And that th- that's that's one of those things where if you're playing the game, you always want the latest edition. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and certainly in this time when... Every time a new edition of a game comes out, you you need to get all the source books again because they all reflect all oh. of the rule changes. Oh, interesting! I've never, I've never gamed, and I, I 
Well, uh, allow, allow me to educate you in, in the ways of gamers. <laughs> uh, the second one, number 16, uh, the Sons of Anarchy, the official collector's edition. This is uh, based on the uh, number one FX television show, Sons of Anarchy. And this is the official book to the, uh, to the, uh, to the show. So it's so, a companion book. A companion, exactly, right. And uh, that said, about uh, 13,000 copies. But what's interesting is a little bit down the, the list is the life-changing magic of tidying up the Japanese art of decluttering and organizing uh, by Mary Kondo. This one is at number 22. Uh, last week, it was at number 31, and this is something that, uh, with just this week alone, 11,000 copies sold. Uh, its first week, which was uh, the week ending November 10, it was at number 23, at 4,600 copies. So it's interesting how there was a mention in the New York Times about it mm-hmm. uh, the week before this, and... Um, and we've been hearing a little bit about this elsewhere, so that was enough to, to jump it up. So it just shows a little bit how media works uh, for unsuspecting books. And also word of mouth. I definitely right. heard about this book from a number of my friends. People were sending links around. Mm. I don't know anyone who's actually tried the mm. decluttering method, um, which sounds delightful and endearing. You're supposed to handle every one of your objects and and sort of approach it and ask if it brings wonderfulness into your life. And if not, then with respect, you set it aside. And everything that you keep, you treat with respect. And it, it's very intimate. Wow. Uh, and uh, and and it's, it's actually quite similar to what I did when I was uh, cleaning out my closet before right. my last house move. I was like, well, do I feel fabulous in these clothes? And if not, out they out. go. Yeah. And so I only have clothes that make me feel fabulous. And it's a, it's a great way to live. Do I still need these tax returns from 2007? How long, how long do I need to hold on to them? And that's, that's are a they more giving practical me- <laughs> question. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. you know, does it, does it give you pleasure to look back <laughs> over those tax returns and watch your income go up and up? And then maybe they're <laughs> right. worth keeping. Exactly. Yeah. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Gay Talese tells us why the bridge has had such staying power and how he got into the lives of the people who made the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. Don't miss this. We'll be right back. I'm Rose Levy Berenbaum, author of The Baking Bible, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Gay Talese on the line. His book, The Bridge, has just been reissued in a lovely 50th anniversary edition. Hello, Mr. Talese. Glad you could join us. Nice to hear from you. (laughs) So this is the 50th anniversary of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge and, and of your book about it, which you wrote when you were 32 years old. Did you expect that book to stay relevant and available for 50 years? I didn't think in the, uh, along those terms 50 years ago. At that time, I was uh, in my next last year with the New York Times. I had joined the Times as a reporter, a general assignment reporter in the, in the 1950s. And in 64, 65, I was thinking I wanted to spend more time writing books and less time chasing daily stories and daily deadlines. But I did have opportunities during my last few years of the time to do 12 or 13 articles about the bridge in progress. I, my first idea was to write about the men and women whose homes were destroyed as plans were announced in 1959 
to build this bridge between Brooklyn and Staten Island. And people in Brooklyn certainly didn't see any need for that bridge. In fact, they hated the idea and had protests during this during that period of 1959, mostly directing their animosity toward Robert Moses, who was the great builder in those days. Anybody read the classic work of Robert Caro on the power builder? or the power broker, I should say, the power broker. Right. Robert Moses knows what kind of personality he had and knows how controversial Mr. Moses was. All grand, granted, he got things done, and he did a lot of great things, but in the process, he broke a lot of hearts. And many of those hearts were centered in the neighborhood of Bay Ridge in Brooklyn, hundreds of homes, hundreds of stores, pieces of, 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 of the economic boom of, of Brooklyn were being torn apart because these properties were in the way of the proposed roadway to the bridge, to the Brooklyn side of the, of the, of the toll gates. And, uh, and in time, it took a year, but in time everyone was, was uprooted and, and exiled to different parts of New York City or to Connecticut or, or New Jersey. So I wrote about the great exodus, as, as, as it was, and the, and the sadness and anger that was part of the departure from their homes to other places that were, they were assigned, people, children, old people, etc. After, after that, I, I saw from visiting that site how this bridge was being, little by little, rising out of the water. First, there was the concrete that was the foundation for the two towers. Each tower one on the Brooklyn side, as you know, and one on the Staten Island side, or along, where each each of them would be 70 stories high uh, if we were looking at a skyscraper. This was just a, a, a skyscraper of, of steel uh, that would hold up the the suspension span that would 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 drape itself across the water and then link to the to the edges of Brooklyn, the edges of Staten Island, and ultimately form a roadway, a bridgeway for trucks and cars and, and that kind of traffic that would, of course, accelerate the economic process of Staten Island joining the four other boroughs of New York City and becoming assimilated economically and socially more than it had been in Staten Island had previously built during centuries of, of being almost farmland. I mean, back in the 1840s, the great revolutionary Joseph Garibaldi lived and worked with a candle maker in Staten Island. I mean, it has an interesting side history, but not, not to Robert Moses' idea, as he proposed it in 1959, to really bring Staten Island into the sphere of the city of New York. And so change was forced upon people, and with any change, there's protest, there's, there's, there's anger, there's, there's signs bearing not, uh, such themes as, who needs this damn bridge? Who needs this bridge? And nobody except Moses really thought we needed the bridge, but Moses' will prevailed. And in time, people became resigned. And in time, I, as a young observing reporter for the New York Times, thought, this is a great story. Because for the first time in my, my young career, and I, I will see something that's going to reach the skyline of the great city of skyline uh, architecture, this, the city of skyscrapers, the city of bridges. Uh, and I will see how it is done. I mean, I when I first arrived in New York from a small town in southern New Jersey, I arrived in New York, and all of us come with a great sense of wonder as we, as we survey the city, as we look above our heads and see towering buildings. And some of us, at least I, some of us wonder, who built these things? Who actually got on the scaffold? Who got on these ladders? Who, who climbed across 
the these narrow pathways that 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 link parts of steel with other parts of steel. Who are these crazy people with hard hats who go up there and risk their lives to build the Chrysler Building, the Empire State Building, or way back in 1860, the Brooklyn Bridge? You know, great books have been written about the Brooklyn Bridge, but we just still do not know, uh, Mr. McCullough aside, who actually built stone by stone that Brooklyn Bridge, which is one of the great landmarks of our of our city. We know the names of the engineers. We know the Roblings in the case of the Brooklyn Bridge. And we know... For example, the George Washington Bridge has the engineer, not so well known as Roebling, but but Mr. O. H. Amon built the George Washington Bridge, and that same old gent in 1960-61 was then designing in charge of the design of, of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. He was in his 80s, and, and he lived in the Carlisle Hotel on Madison Avenue, 76th Street. And I'd go up there to his penthouse from time to time and interview him and, to, and and get his opinion how things were going down down in lower manhattan in in the water in the waterways of the construction of the bridge and i got to know also some of the men in hard hats who and i even got permission from this us steel which was providing the steel of course for this project a permission to go up there and the catwalks and they gave me a hard hat and and I followed these men, and I watched them as they riveted and used their hands and bolted and do all those things that we observers from below don't really notice from these people working at high altitudes above how much the use of the hand, just, just hand-to-handy work. I mean, we think that machines are involved, but many times the machines are are part of the job, but hands are always essential to the job. Robots don't build bridges. Uh, technology doesn't do it by itself. It has to have the the muscle and, and, and fiber of human form, of the, the, the digits, the fingers, the arms, the shoulders. You see this up at high altitudes. And I was just I was overwhelmed. With, with a kind of uh, curiosity and, and a sense of, of appreciation and a sense that I had a story to tell. And what would the story be? It would be about these men who do these things for which they receive no direct credit, and in nearly all cases, no one knows who they, who they are by name. There isn't any plaque at the basis of the Chrysler Building, the Empire State Building, the Brooklyn Bridge, or the aforementioned George Washington. There's not a little plaque with all the names of, sometimes you go to memorial places and you see the names of the heroes of, 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 of wars or, or victims of great disasters. But in the case, back to the bridge, there's no plaque. And I thought, I'll, I'll do my own kind of plaque. And that plaque was this book of getting to know first the men, and in some cases, women who were in the administrative chores of, of that, and get to know them and go to their homes and interview them and see what, what, what prompted them to do this kind of perilous work and and what pride the, 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 they bring to what they do, anonymous though they are as practitioners of their work. And I just spent uh, the next, every free hour I had for the next four years between 1959 and 1965 um, to doing this. and And... And in the end, uh, I told you the bridge was completed in 64, but I still worked on it a little, little more, and I had this idea of doing a book, and I completed the book right, right at about the time the bridge was, was ready to be served, served the public as a form of transportation from one borough to the other. And I not only got to know them, but I kept in touch, in touch with them. I do this actually 
with all my work, I'm basically an old-fashioned reporter. I've identified with the so-called new journalism, and sometimes I'm told I'm the godfather of that, but I'm really not. What I really am is an old-fashioned reporter. I learned from old-fashioned guys who came out of the 1930s and 1920s and people I met when I was a young person on the New York Times, and they were in their senior years. And when the first thing one of these great reporters told me, he said, Gabe, if you want to be a great reporter, he said, never use a telephone. You know, and the telephone in those days, in the early 1950s, was like new technology. And there were reporters uh, who felt if you interviewed somebody over the phone, it was like you're missing the story because you had to see eye to eye the people you're interviewing. You had to get their gestures, how they moved, the atmosphere in which they spoke to you. And I, I took this to heart. I was only 22. And I took this to heart, and it's been with me. I'm now 82, and I've never forgotten the old message that I was that was imparted to me. You have to be there. You have to be there. You have to watch the people doing what they're doing. You have to talk to them and see their eyes and catch capture their gestures and see the context in which they do what they do. And all this means that, that I've learned nothing except what I think was the primary fundamental lesson for careful nonfiction writing is to be an eyewitness to what you're doing. And so through these more than 60 years of being published, beginning as just an article writer for the New York Times and then later magazine writer and still later writer of short books and longer books, I've always practiced that same uh, suggestion or edict, I should say, of that old-time reporter who got me when I was young and imparted to me this message of a lifetime. You have to be there. Wow, that's I, I can hear it as you're saying it. I can I can I feel what it was like to be there to go to people's houses to to sit there in a hard hat alongside the the construction workers. Um, but you must have done some some other research too. Did you did you go to libraries? Did you research the the backgrounds of the I, other bridges? I, went to, I, I did read. I did go to libraries. And to the New York Times morgue, which, as you know, is a library within the within the building, mm-hmm. and read about some of the disasters of bridges, and there have been a number, none so particularly centered in New York City, but some in other places of, of the United States, and also in in neighboring country Canada, for example. And I read about these disasters, and I read about these engineers and designers whose careers were ruined, of course, for the disaster. I remember reading about a, a, a railroad bridge somewhere near Montreal uh, crossing the St. Lawrence River, and it might have been the late 1800s. And a lot of Indians uh, were working on that bridge in some subservient role. They were just carrying carrying bolts and carrying sections of steel for the, for the workers. They were uh, really uh, factotums on this project. And then the bridge collapsed, and hundreds and hundreds of people killed. were killed, including a lot of these Indians. And the bridge manufacturer who was using these Indians as, as, as little, you know, in minor roles, like in, not even interns, but they would be, if you use that term for them, be kind of mis, misnomer. But that's what they were. They were just little, little people that did it's, it's menial tasks. And then the bridge, the bridge, the Indians became more enamored because of the disaster, it gave risk to this to this uh, career of being of being like what they call an iron worker. At first, it was iron. Now it's steel, of course, but they still use the term iron worker. And so, Indians. When I went to the uh, when I started hanging around with the Verrazano in these 
construction stages in the beginning, I met many Indians from the, uh, from the same reservation along the St. Lawrence River, whose grandfathers went down with that that um, const- uh, railroad bridge. And these were the grandchildren of that disaster. And I really befriended a number of them. In fact, one guy I know, he's, he's written up in the book named Danny Montour, an attractive man in his early 40s when I met him in 1963. He said, you know, you ought to come up to the reservation. Like, come up with us. We go every weekend. You know, we get into big cars and maybe maybe as many as 200 Indian iron workers would get in so many big cars. They all had big cars because usually four or five guys in a car. And they'd go take an eight hundred about an eight hour ride from Brooklyn up up to to the area near Montreal, and they'd visit their families for a weekend. And then on early Monday morning, around two o'clock in the morning, they'd start the drive back to be in time for an eight o'clock call to begin a day's work on the bridge site. And you know, I I just really became enamored of of this this way of working, the the risk taking. The pride in work, because as many of them told me in their in their own particular way of expressing it, what they build, what they help to build, last outlasts them. There's something almost like like religion in this, in that it, it's a, it's a sense of the hereafter. It's a sense of uh, after you die, life goes on. Well, after these people die, some of them fell off the bridge while they're doing their work, but nevertheless, even if they survived. Uh, and died a normal and uh, in a, in a natural death, uh, that work, which they looked upon uh, as as great as a monument to their pride and craft, that bridge lasts forever. And their grandchildren and great-grandchildren, hey, one day my great-grandfather put some bolts, 100 bolts in that Verrazano Bridge. Or my grandfather worked uh, even on, on other things like the Madison Square Garden skyscraper, the, the Penn, Penn Plaza building. So, and I met some young guys, and, and not only Indians, but of course, people of, of all, uh, all these are, are, are mostly Americans. I may mention the Indians, they're, they're a minority, maybe at most 20%, but that's a lot for, for, for any, any, any one group. But most of these people are the same kind of people whose families might be in the fire department, the police department. I mean, a lot of them are Irish and some Italians and you know the white working class, as well as the Indians and some Native, I mean, indigenous Native Americans and, and African Americans, but the but the primary bone and muscle for tradition for long, long periods has been Irish uh, Americans of Irish origin, and and just the same as I said before that that are in your fire department and your police department, and and one of these young men who who was 26 years old. I got to know this last year, uh, in, in the year 2014, and he said he just went up in 2013, right during the Christmas season, exactly a year ago, to help put the the, the aerial tower on the uh, on the new World Trade Center building, you know, Tower One. And he said when he got up there, he and young iron workers such as such as he uh, would look around Manhattan and they look down. To the Verrazano Bridge, and they oh, my grandfather worked on there, and they look uptown and they see other tall buildings. It might be the the my the aforementioned uh, Penn Plaza building, and this this guy uh, told me oh, his father worked there, and he said, you know, when we look around from these high altitudes at the city of New York, we see the city 
as a family tree. He's towering out of business, our family tree. I thought, what a wonderful way to work. I thought, what? I mean, here are people that when they die or when they just retire and they and they think back upon their contributions, they have a lot of pride in having done something with their lives. I mean, they, they see tangible evidence of their effort. And so few of us, even though we try to think otherwise, so few of us have the have the opportunity to to think that way, to think that what we're doing, even if we're not celebrated for it, even if we're not highly skilled, but are rather crafts in the craft field, or or, or workers uh, with their hands, manual workers, these people still have evidence of work they did 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and work that will outlive them, and so it's a sense. Of, I think of it as a religion. I said before that, but I repeat that because it lives after them. The idea that it's not over when you die. What you what you did on earth will celebrate itself in your memory. And I picked up on that in this book that I uh, is. I'm so glad that it's reissued because a whole new generation of readers will know what it is like to be a worker in high places, to be a worker. In, in 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 windy days and cloudy days at in in forty fifty sixty feet above the city, there is no place in New York, including the boroughs, where there is not towering uh, places of, of 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 business or or residence residential buildings. There's one not far from where I live, almost a hundred stories right here on Fifty Sixth Street and Park Avenue. And people get up there and take a chance and put this steel together and build it. And then they finish their work and millionaires move in to these great apartments you read about in the real estate section. And no one really thinks, who actually put the steel and linked it together and, and soldered it together and banged the bolts in here? Who did it? Well, these are the people I told you in my own book called The Bridge that I... I, I've interviewed and got to know, and and so I'm I'm really their chronicler. I'm the chronicler of of rather anonymous, magnificent, heroic people, people that work in places that I wouldn't want to work because I don't have that circus sense of of inevitability. But they they are so confident and so optimistic, and capable to be risk at being risk takers, and doesn't bother them. Although sometimes it does really bother me. They slip and they fall and. They become an obituary. That's 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 their lives. I love it, but I wouldn't. I don't envy them. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Gay Talese, who's the author of The Bridge, who is telling us about the the workers that he wrote about with just incredible poetry and feeling. Um, so did did you learn this, this hands-on approach as a reporter? And you were a copy boy, a reporter, a journalist for the New York Times for many years. Uh, you know, is is that where you really developed this, this yeah, sense of I, getting I, into I, people's it lives? Did, my, my life, it, I don't want to dwell on it, but... 
in succinctly as I can. I learned craft from um, my, my father, who was a tailor. He wasn't a successful tailor in making a lot of money, but he took tremendous time and patience and ended up crafting a beautiful suit. Suits. They didn't sell many of them, but they were beautiful. They were maybe too high priced for the market, which was only a small town outside of near Atlantic City. Social City, New Jersey is the name of my hometown, south of Atlantic City, by about 12 miles. But I learned from him the spools that were hanging from the ceiling, was dangling down. I later on thought of those spools in terms of the cables when I was watching the Birdsano Bridge going up. And I was thinking of my father's pride and craft. And I was associating it with first the great engineer, O.H. Amon, who I told you before built mm-hmm. the, the uh, George Washington and other bridges in this city. And, uh, but the crowning achievement, his final achievement, uh, Mr. Amon, was, was the Verrazano. But I was then thinking of not only the craft, but reinforced when I got a job at the New York Times. Actually, as you said, I, I, I did begin as a copy boy. I was I was the, just just as just an intern, a, a servant. I go out and get sandwiches and get coffee for the editors and run errands and deliver copy, you know, deliver cable, foreign correspondence articles. They had to go up and down the 14-story building of the New York Times, and I delivered them to the editors. And I learned what the building looked like. I learned a lot about help about people. I learned a lot of that. Uh, as a boy, watching my father measure men, men of prominence, those few men who did buy those expensive suits my father made. But when I was a reporter, I always thought of myself as working like a tailor or writing like a tailor because I took such care watching my father with his never-used uh, sewing machine. He always did everything by hand. Hmm. Wow. And I found that... Even now, in this time of technology, I still do things by hand, like those bridge builders. I, I, I'm identifying with, with, with handcrafting. And as a reporter, I'm trying to stay in order here, but as a young man, I learned from the best. That man who told me, stay away from the phone, young man, that was part of it. And there's also, from my uh, other, the other elders that influenced me, they said, if you better try and succeed in getting it right. Never, never write. You're not a fiction writer. You're not an essayist. You're not a poet. You're not a dramatist. You're not Arthur Miller. You're not Ernest Hemingway. You're a reporter. And what that means is you are in the front lines of history. You're the soldier. We're the, we're the infantrymen for the historians. And we're, what we see and what we report in this paper of record, we, we are a paper of record. And we better get it right. And if you get it wrong, it will, you'll, 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 lose the respect of people who care. And I learned that, it was, it was, and I, I never forgot that. Get it right, get it right, and show up, be there, testify with your own eyes and your sensibilities to whatever you're describing, whether it's a one-alarm one fire on West 35th Street, or whether it's a disaster that, that maybe a, sub, a plane hits a building or, or a building is crumbled by to terrorism, whatever you're, whatever you're doing, or interviewing a ballet dancer, or be there, a ball player, be there. Uh, and, of course, iron workers, be there. Watch these guys. Watch these guys as they go step by step up to these high altitudes and then string the cable and then put this link, link the sections of the, of, of the roadway under. All of that, all that magnificent work. Observe it, observe it. Give a first-hand account. So that's been my, my credo. That's been my, my, my way of working. And... Um, 
even today with capacities through technology to do more work in less time, I resisted that. I mean, I don't want to Google my way through life. I don't want to, I don't even have a cell phone. I don't want to, I don't, I never had a cell phone. I want to go and see people like the man told me in, in, when I was a kid, you know, don't use the cell, don't use the phone. Well, I don't, I don't use the phone. I mean, I'm, I might use the phone to answer uh, an appointment, confirm an appointment, but I always, but when, sometimes when I want to see somebody, I just show up. I, I'm I'm not uh, lacking in politeness, but I also believe you have to be there. You have to show up. And if someone doesn't want to see you and can say so on a phone or Google you out of business I, or, or email you and say, no, no, thank you. I believe if you do appear in person and if you are uh, make a, a worthy appearance um, and have a, a level of, of politeness, People will give you a chance to explain what you want. You knock on the door, and if you look presentable and are, are sincere and are uh, and and have a, a, a legitimate desire to enlarge information from the mouth of someone who knows what it is that, that you want to know yourself, I think they'll give you a chance to explain. They may still resist or or, or refuse, but nevertheless, I feel I have the best chance at showing up. And so that's what I do. By the way I work, I call the art of hanging out. But before you can hang out with, with bridge builders or, or, or the Rockettes or the New York Yankee baseball team or whatever, um, you, have to, you have to get yourself uh, in the door. You have to knock on the door and, and, and get entrance to people's attention and explain why, why you think that they are they, they they should talk to you that they should give you their time and they have to know why and i i know that i can explain that because i'm not i'm not falsifying any 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 of my motives i'm sincerely interested in the subject and my idea my ideal is to be part of an of 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 a of a nonfiction force whether it's journalistic on the daily level or magazine writing or book level as a nonfiction writer of books I, I, I want to, to justify my intrusions into other people's lives by saying what we're doing together, my, my reflecting accurately your view, your, your activity, what, what you do, I think it's important what you do. I think it's relevant. Uh, I think it is part, part of what our society is about. I mean, I really do believe that, and I want to get from relatively unknown people, more often than not, their position their uh, attitude about why it is that they think as they do, why they do what they do, I have this curiosity. And I think it's almost almost something could only be done by one person. I don't, I'm never part of a committee. And as a little, it started, I mean, it's amazing that I can be as old as I am, 82 years old, and work the same way I did when I was 22 years old, when I was a kid reporter on the New York Times. I believe that great institutions such as the Times and many other great institutions in, in publishing of books or magazines like the New Yorker, they 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 survive because they have a a certain standard, a certain high standard of credibility, of respectability, of serious intent to enlarge the the knowledge of society through through the inquiry into people's hearts and minds, people who might not be known to the general public, but still have something to say. And I just love 
being a, a, a part of the process of getting from these people who might otherwise be reluctant to say anything to get them to say something that I think is would not otherwise be said if I didn't get them to convince them to say it. And then this adds to the history. So when I'm dead and all the people of my generation reporters are dead, we'll still have leave records behind for the historians. So this is parallel to these bridge builders. You know, as I said earlier, they're dead, but their work isn't dead. Their work is alive. And what a glorious thing to be part of something that outlives you and you're proud of and your pride lingers. And through your grandchildren or others who knew of, of the work that you did affiliating yourself with a grand project such as the bridges today. And you mentioned uh, just by nationality, the, the Irish workers and some of, I think you said the Mohawk workers uh, who built bridges, your, your art of, of uh, hanging out, as you said, sounds like a very Italian characteristic. As my father said, the well, art of, you know, Italians, I mean, when we say Italians in New York, we think of, of people from, from the north as much as the south, but really the Italians who came to America were all southerners. They're all from south of Naples up to the to the toe of the boot of Italy, which is Calabria, which is where my people come from, and across the toe and across the Strait of Messina is Sicily. And so the Frank Sinatra's and the Mario Cuomo's and the Madonna's and the Joe DiMaggio and, you know, on and on and on. We're all from the south, and what we really are our villagers, that whole part of Italy. This is not the Italy of the Renaissance. This is not the Italy of Ferrara and and and, and, and Torino and Milan and the fashion shows and the uh, fashionable people uh, or Rome. It's really the agrarian South, poor such as the American South has been from 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 the earliest days of our history, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, really agrarian and poor, poor in many ways, and mentally included and academically, and opportunities are very much limited compared to the industrial areas of, of New York and, and Boston, etc. Similarly, Italy has that. The South, the South has always been poor, and especially being mountainous. The people living in mountain villages are isolated from other villages, and those, and until. Uh, transportation was was accelerated through automobile traffic and roads that just would, would 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 allow people to go by automobile from place to place. When my parents were growing up, and when I visited uh, Calabria as a boy when I was in the army, which was in 1955-56, I was in the army for two years in Germany, and I visited Italy a lot on furlough. Uh, I noticed that that uh, they had a very insular mentality. The Italians, they they didn't. They were isolated. They're in mountains, and their their grandparents, and and my, and mine and my parents, and all the parents who whose name are Cuomo and Joe DiMaggio and Frank Sinatra, all those are from from the south, and they have this village mentality, and I, and they're very conservative. I mean, even uh, Andrew Cuomo, who's the son of the governor, former governor, uh, the president. Uh, they, they might be liberal in, in their democratic stripe of a meaning, but they're conservative. I remember Governor Cuomo, the father, um, Mario, would would go home every night. He 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 lived in the mansion in the governor's mansion in Albany. But if he flew to Chicago or someplace to make a speech, he'd come home at night. He just he just wanted to be in his own bed. He had this kind of 
was, um, I, I just think I just think that there's something about the the idea of hanging out, which comes from what I said, of being on familiar terms, know, wanting to know people. It's it's wanting to see the city of New York as a series of villages. And when I first came to New York and I started writing essays for the New York Times or small vignettes or, or, or articles, I always wanted to go into the shadows of the city, the, the parts of the city that were under under the elevated shadows of the railroad or, or the skyscrapers casting long shadows over neighborhoods. I wanted to see the city as if it was a mountain in southern Italy, and the, these little villages with these personalities that were peculiar to the village, these people that were identified with their neighborhood. And in many days, uh, earlier days, there were whole neighborhoods made up of, of Italians or Irish or Jewish people or black people or you can, it's, uh, Slavic people and a- Asian people. To a degree, that's still true. But when I first came to New York, it was much more true in the ni- early 1950s. And I wanted to explore this city because I thought the city is the world. That all these people from all over the world, from Asia, from the Middle East, uh, South Africa, I mean, and Southern America, and all over Europe, coming coming to this place, New York. And if you go in a subway, if you open your ears, you eavesdrop a little bit, close your eyes, open your, you can hear the voices of the world. I mean, all these accents, all these foreign languages being spoken. Uh, it's, and the wonderful thing about a subway ride in New York is in every subway car, just one car, you will find people from all different backgrounds, different colors. Uh, as I said, speaking sometimes, the, the hardly can speak English half of these people. And what's so wonderful about it, and is often taken for granted, is how well they get along. How well they get along. Yes, we 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 are hearing uh, and reading in the newspapers and hearing on television about the the, the clamor, the outrageous uh, confrontation between a police officer and someone else, and somebody gets uh, murdered or someone gets pushed in front of the track. Yes, these things do happen, but really rarely happen when you can think think that every day, every hour of the day. Thousands and thousands and thousands, many thousands of people are going back and forth underground on the, in these subway cars, getting along, helping sometimes a person with a baby carriage go up the steps between when you're going up and down a subway uh, level, uh, how courteous they are, the generosity shown sometimes to people who are singing or, or dancing in the cars. It, it might not be... It might not be allowed, but they do it anyway. There's a lot of the, the heart and soul of the city. You can see in about a 10-minute ride in a, any subway car in any part of the city of New York, and it's just it's astonishing. It's just astonishing to me. Old as I am, I never quite get tired of watching it and thinking about it and celebrating it. I wish I didn't have to to cut this short. I feel like we have had the privilege of sitting in a journalism masterclass. Wonderful stories. This is just this is just tremendous. I wish we could listen to you all day, but uh, unfortunately, we only. Oh well, thank you so much for for hearing what you did, and I'm glad I don't have to cut all this stuff. Oh no, believe me, I don't think we intend to cut any of it at all. Um, But we do have to wrap this up. All right, well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you. We've been talking with Gay Talese, and you can find his book, The Bridge, in stores right now.
I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Contributing Editor Diane Patrick talks about making publishing more diverse, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Joanne Bourne. I'm the author of Rogue Spy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today we have two. We have our senior news editor, Calvin Reed, and our longtime contributing editor, Diane Patrick, here to tell us all about diversity in publishing. Welcome again, Calvin, and welcome to our show, Diane. Thank you. So always good to be back. So this is a feature that Calvin uh, was the editor of and wrote the intro. And Diane, you did the research reporting and wrote the piece. And the title of it is called Diversity. Well, to, uh, well, well diversity. We'll help you out. It's called uh, Got Diversity. Got Six Diversity with a question that mark. Address book industry diversity. 21st century style. Oh, what are these six? So, so let's talk about one of them. Well, tell you what. Look, can, can we just give you some quick background on this? Please, yeah. This is actually our uh, African-American publishing feature. We do this uh, every year. We do a, a wide variety of covering right. into uh, you know, African-American publishing throughout the year. But we, we anchor our coverage with a, a piece in the spring uh, about African-American uh, collection development in libraries. And historically also in December we do our African-American publishing feature, which looks at different issues in African-American book publishing. Because of this particular year, and every year, Diane and I get together and talk about what we're going to do. This year, for a lot of reasons, and I'm going to let Diane talk about that, we thought we would take a look at diversity. Am I right? That's correct. And this idea came from your attendance at the um, the panel, the Salary and Diversity panel that was held earlier this year. Yes, moderated by uh, Jim Milliot, our editorial director. Yep. Mm-hmm. And um, when we were talking about the possible topics for this uh, article, we thought that it would be good to riff off of the panel. And so... At first, we we wanted to sort of look at all the publishing programs that were addressing diversity, so that it would mm-hmm. have you know yeah. reflect on the uh, staffing in mm-hmm. the industry. And um, but as I started to research it, I also liked the idea of not continuing to sort of vent about the problem. I like to get Mm -hmm. an answer or solutions. I'm fascinated by people who are really doing something Mm -hmm. about any kind of an issue. So I started doing just some random research, and um, one of the things I found based on the people that you told me that you met at that panel Mm -hmm. was uh, I looked at the Children's Book Council because we know that the children's side has been more sort of mobilized on the yeah. issue of mm-hmm. diversity. So um, just looking at the Children's Book Council website, I noticed that their tone was very, um, you know, these are the things that we can do and these are the resources that we can offer you and here's how we can keep the conversation going. So I decided to speak to some of the people at the Children's Book Council and um, one of those people was Ayana Coleman and she was the very first person I spoke with and she was so exuberant about the things that they were doing and about the things that could be done. And so I sort of took her, her uh, the interview that I did with her and just, you know, riffed off of that. 
And uh, my further research, I found an article in uh, Gawker that was called The Difficulties of Publishing While Black. And this was um, written by Jason Parham back in October. And after reading the article, I, I looked at the comments. And one of the comments was some anonymous person who did not attribute you know, her name or his name. And the thing that jumped out at me was I work in publishing and I've heard people in the industry say people don't buy books by black characters, about black characters. And also that she mentioned she worked for an indie publisher and she mentioned that publisher's name. Yeah. So that's how I found Kat Ng. <laughs> and she is uh, she was just amazing, very out of the box ideas. So what I did, I guess I just rounded up a lot of people that had out of the box ideas so that it's more like a DIY article on people who for people who are saying, "Oh, there's no diversity in the industry and the staffing." Mm-hmm. Th- that's true, but here's what you can do about it. Yeah, I mean part of this also was uh, for instance what we call the article, you know, the six hacks that address uh, book industry d- diversity. Really, I mean, one of the things I think Diane tried to do was really kind of open the language up. Uh, I mean, one of the great quotes in the article, and we'll get to the, I mean, there are six hacks in there, but, yeah, sure. but really, you know, collaborate and like, but but really the story behind this is really interesting in that uh, Ayana, I think, one of her was. quotes was that, you know, <laughs> the, so much of the reporting on diversity, she says, it's such a downer. Uh, I mean, it's all, it's this solemn quest that you know, it's like a big homework assignment you've got to do. Uh, we were trying to open the language up, uh, show that there are doable things out here, and to bring in book professionals who had really practical suggestions for how to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, among those suggestions, I mean, some of this is common sense, collaborate, take a look at other adventures. There's, you can, there's more detail in the article. Use social media. In fact, that's how you, uh, mm-hmm. with Miss Ng. Um, and for instance, one in particular, just look at the BISEC codes. I mean, one of the things that's going on is that they're looking at the BISEC codes and coming up with more uh, a, a more nuanced selection of codes that they will submit to BISG. And they talked about how this could just simply bring in more diverse titles into bestseller lists and into top-selling lists. So there are, there's a whole range of things you can do that don't require you necessarily to have a rally and carry signs, right. but could be very effective. And how would something like that, uh, using BISEC, and explain BISEC codes to our, to our listeners who may not know okay, well, it, and how would that affect... The BISEC codes are basically uh, uh, standardized codings that help categorize books based on what their topics are. Right. Uh, obviously, they're very important in uh, the book selling, throughout the book selling supply, supply chain. Uh, and in the, the area of digital feeds and media, they become very important in how you pick up books for certain lists. One of the things that they did, I think at the Children's Book Council it was, they looked at they thought that the the headings were maybe a little too general. And if they came up with additional codes that were more specific about certain books uh, being diverse titles, this is a way that you can probably add, I think they said something like 900 titles that may, may have just gotten lost among a lot of other uh, more general categories, mm-hmm. but could bring these titles to the top. So 
our article looks at diversity in the broadest way, both in recruiting, uh, what's on your publishing list, what kind of a talent pool you're thinking about in terms of bringing people into the business. It, 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 it's, it's just a, a small contribution to an ongoing discussion in the book industry. And if I should say one more thing, mm-hmm. Publishers Weekly in 1994, this is like a 20-year sort of interesting closure. We did uh, one of the first uh, articles in Publishers Weekly about diversity. I wrote it. So 1994, it was called Houses with No Doors. Uh, the sad thing about that article right now is that many of the same things I found 20 years ago in the business, they, they are almost unchanged today. Wow. Really? Yes. Same issues. Uh, how do you find and, talented uh, minorities? How do you keep them? Uh, not too so, many to find in the business as it is. Right. Um, you know, whether or not, you know, headcount diversity even works or not, that kind of stuff, yes. So we're seeing this, obviously, in the kinds of books published, but also within book publishing and maybe even in magazines that we're not seeing a diversity. Well, one of the things that came out, I mean, this year, and uh, Jim Millard every year does his annual salary survey. Right. This right. year, he added, uh, for the first time, questions about diversity. Right. Um, what we got back, um, the results was basically 90% of the respondents were white. Right. 3%. Uh, I think were Hispanic, and three percent were um, Asian, and one percent African American. Um, not so good. <laughs> How is this industry um, uh, plan to publish mm-hmm. for an increasingly diverse nation uh, if they can't seem to attract right. enough minorities to yeah. their own editorial staffs to do right. so? And Diane, while you were speaking with with a lot of these people. How many of them were themselves uh, minorities, and and how did they address the kinds of books? I mean, are you know are are non minorities necessarily going to be you know, looking? Is minority or non minority going to be looking for minority books equally or not? What did they say? Well, I don't think I got a, a handle on that specific mm-hmm. issue because I was really looking more at the staffing of publishing companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, Ayanna Coleman and um, Dawn Davis are two of the people I spoke to and Linda Duggins and they are African American mm-hmm. women and um, that doesn't mean... <laughs> it was a multicultural group yeah. right. of interviewees yeah. that of, mul- yeah. of different race, races right, and background. Right. I mean, look, look, I think one of the things we're all worried about here is that it, it, anyone can publish a book for any community, and they should. And, and obviously, we encourage that. But it does beg... You do have to wonder, if you've got an industry that's over 90% white, right. what's being published? Well, it, 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 it absolutely has the potential to affect the, the quality of the level of the publishing mm-hmm. that you're seeing for minority audiences. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with this industry taking a good look in the mirror and try, and, and saying... Obviously, we want the best people we can get, but you know what? That that means we need to make sure that the best people reflect the world that we're publishing to and the market that we're trying to sell into. I mean, just as a just to have a basic sense of respect for the right. people that you hope will buy your books. Right, right, sure. And there have been, I, I believe, some imprints that are. I think Amistad is one that sure that absolutely publishes. To, are, are, have you found others? 
they're out there. I mean, you know, and the thing about it is that, I don't know, as I said, I really was looking at the staffing and the editorial, and it's probably because over the, I don't know, 15 years that that I've been covering this, I've seen a lot of the staff people come and go. And when someone leaves, you think, oh my goodness, you know, there's, there's one less. And then you have to think to yourself, well, you know, when you really think about it, a person's career choice is really personal. Mm-hmm. And just because you're the only whatever in that staff doesn't mean that you're supposed to be representing whatever group that is. Right. You know, you may decide you want to leave law to become a, a gardener, and right. that's your personal career choice. Right. But um, it's still very obvious when you look at the pictures of the staff or you, you know, right. it's yeah, just, course. you know. And I think that's what the big issue is here. And I think that hopefully the article has so many fresh ideas that even people who are not activists can look at it and say, you know what, let's do that. Because this is not something that's going to change overnight, like anything. It's not going to change overnight. But I think if if your heart is in the right place, right, that sounds sentimental and not very left brain. But if your heart is in the right place, then it'll be clear where your um, you know what what your thinking is and where what your commitments and priorities are. There's an active there's an active publishing of, of African American titles and titles across a variety of ethnic backgrounds throughout publishing today. That doesn't mean there can't be more, and that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that this industry shouldn't be looking at a recruit and editorial staff that can add to what they're doing already. Uh, one of the other things that the article looks at is at the New Press. The New Press is a not-for-profit publishing house launched about 1992 by uh, the late Andre Schiffler, right. you, who used to run Pantheon. Right. Uh, one of the things that they have done from the very beginning of their existence was they had an internship program that was set up to bring people of atypical backgrounds into publishing. I mean, 20 years later, it's sad to say that the New Press is still one of the few publishing entities in New York that has a has a unit set up specifically to recruit young people into publishing, uh, uh, not just ethnic background, though that's important, but also uh, disability, um, uh, gender uh, mm-hmm. is important, though obviously in book publishing, uh, the gender issue isn't always necessarily about recruiting since there are so many women in the business. Um, but really, it, 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 the, the New Press deserves to be commended for doing this throughout as a small nonprofit sure. publisher, right. doing this from the very beginning uh, to, I mean, for 20 years. And they put they brought more than 500 people into this business. Uh, wow. Many of what, hundreds of which continue to work in publishing, as well as at the New Press. So, that's pretty impressive. And, yeah. and for those out there listening, one great way to, to to do this is to click on our website, click on the article, and read about it. That's right. Yes, go exactly. straight to the source. Go straight to the source. <laughs> it's a great article. <laughs> <laughs> if you see for ourselves, because of the interviewees, they really contributed. Yeah. And if I, if I may, really awesome. quickly, I mean, Shay Earhart, director of Columbia Publishing Course, Ayana Coleman from the Children's Book mm-hmm. Council, Don Day. Davis, uh, publisher at, at Atria 37 Inc., Linda Duggins, who's the uh, director of publicity at Grand Central, Cat Ng, who, uh, who we talked about earlier, who is actually a um, she's work, she's a communications manager at Barrett Kohler, Tina Jordan, VP over at the Association of American Publishers, and David Unger and Retha uh, Powers uh, from the Publishing Certificate Program at the City College of New York, doing incredible work at, once again, bringing young people into uh, um, uh, teaching them the skills they need to be in book publishing and Diane Wachtel who's the uh, executive director of the New Press oh fantastic yes. Yes. 
Calvin, Diane, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Patrick Swenson, author of The Ultra Thin Man, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're on vacation for the next two weeks, but the show doesn't stop. We'll be rebroadcasting some of our favorite interviews from the archives for you to enjoy while you're watching the year come to a close. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 